This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Now, if you're in Mark uh, chapter 6, could you just stand with me? I know you just got sit, sat down, but uh, could you stand with me? We're going to dive into our study here in Mark, Mark chapter 6. And the reason why we stand is because we want to distinguish this time. We want this to be a time where we remember in our hearts and minds and the posture of our bodies that this is God's Word. We're going to be reading a big chunk of Scripture today. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not with honor except in his home, with honor except in his hometown, uh, and among his could do not mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and put them uh, to wear sandals and put on two tunics. Um, and he said to them, "Whatever you, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will be re- will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them." So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is the prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard uh, him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and a military command and leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and give it to, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, I want you to give at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was an exceedingly sorrow, sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Father, I pray that you would take these words, all of these stories that we are reading, and that you would put them together in our hearts and minds, and that we would see what is it that your Spirit is speaking to us, that we would hear those words, and it would change our lives, and change 
our perspective and change the way we treat others. We pray these things in your name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. I was having a struggle reading all of that this morning. I was stumbling like a kindergartner today. Um, I just wanted to take a minute. I know that, um, that as we go into sections of Scripture like this, we can start to uh, feel the weight of all that's happening. I mean, you feel the weight of the... Uh, the rejection that Jesus was feeling. You hear the weight of the command as he's sending out the disciples, the rejection that they would feel. You see the, the pain and suffering that John the Baptist faced in the face of evil people. And uh, you start to see all of the things that are there. And you're, you're wondering, how are we going to bring all of these things together? I mean, we're taking 30 verses and trying to make sense of them in a short period of time. And I hope that uh, we are encouraged as we're reading through this, not to make this the only place in which we study these things. I mean, what a great time for us to take some of this home and pray together as families and learn these things together because there's so much in this. I'm only going to be able to hit a bit of it. But what I wanted to do is kind of zoom out from these verses just a minute so that we can remember what it is that we have been looking at. What are the things that we have been studying? From the very beginning of this book, Mark has been making an announcement. Mark has been bringing forth this announcement from the very first verses, and that is Jesus is King. Jesus is king, and his kingdom is being announced in this book. It's a constant theme throughout this book, that Jesus is king. We are seeing that his kingdom is different than all other kingdoms in this world. That this king is unlike all other kings. And what we're seeing throughout this book is the contrast between King Jesus and the kings of this world. The kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God. And we've been seeing this as we've been walking through this book. Things like, in the kingdom of God there is no evil. There's no sickness. That We see that as Jesus goes places, people are healed. The evil is driven out. Other kingdoms and other kings, they pursue popularity. But Jesus does something way different, right? He's not after popularity or the approval of crowds. He's being led by His Father. And oftentimes, uh, He's telling people not to tell uh, others about Him. He's telling demons not to say who He is. He's not trying to build a crowd. He's trying to build something different, which is different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world have kings who are strong and maybe mythical warriors that they do these kinds of huge, big acts of valiant kind of uh, war and they go to they go to battle for their people but king jesus is sympathetic and he's a friend of sinners he's not a warrior's friend he's a friend of sinners and he does these kinds of things that are so different than the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of this world, they have kings who are, diff, who are distant. And they just have big crowds who kind of follow them, but they're distant. And what we see is that in the kingdom of God, this God is our Father, and He is family with His people, and He brings His people near. The kingdom of this world emphasizes that if you want to be a part of that kingdom, you've got to be a good talker. You've got to be able to articulate well. But in the kingdom of God, it pushes its people to be hearers. Hearers of the word. That's how that kingdom takes root in our heart. The very interesting thing about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is not built on the merit of its people. It's not built on their ability to be good. Right In the kingdoms of this world, the people who get the most prestige and power are the people who do the best, who work the hardest. But in the kingdom of God, it's built on grace. It's built on the work of the king for its people. It's really built on the king's work for us. And we get to be in and brought in by grace. 
What we're seeing over and over and over again is that in the kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. And as we walk through this, we're constantly being confronted with this reality. A few weeks ago, this had been a couple months ago now, I shared an illustration. I won't uh, expect you to remember it, so I'll try to, to recap it, but it will help us understand this again. If you can kind of picture in your mind a girl who's really desperate, really desperate to be married, very, ex- I mean, just over-the-top desperate to be married, and they've been waiting, she's been waiting for a long time to have this man come in, the man of her dreams, and over this time, she's been planning the day of her wedding, she's been making every arrangement, she doesn't even have the man, but she has the whole ceremony planned, but she knows what the man is going to look like. He has now been built up in her mind as what he will be. And what the expectations of what he will look like. And all of a sudden, a man comes out of nowhere who doesn't look like anything that, that, that she expected. And he gets down on his knees and he says, girl, I'm the, I'm the man of your dreams. I'm the one you've been waiting for all of your life. And all of a sudden, she... Uh, She's like, uh, I know I want to get married, but uh, you are not him. You're, you're not him. You're not anything that I thought you would look like. You're not anything that I thought you, uh, you would, <laughs> how strong you would be. Everything is different about you. I thought you'd be stronger and taller and more handsome, right? And you fit none of those things. And so now he's proposing to her and he's saying, I'm the man of your dreams. Will you marry me? Leave all other and come and follow me and be a a part of, uh, marry me. She rejects him. Now, rejection is an interesting thing because inside of that rejection, there's multiple ways to reject somebody. There's not just one way to reject. There's one way to accept, but there's not just one way to reject. And what we see throughout the book of Mark is multiple ways that Jesus is being rejected, right? I mean, the people of Israel have been anticipating the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah for a long time. And when he finally shows up on the scene, none of them think this is the guy because he doesn't fit any of their expectations, And all of those expectations that they had actually make it so that Jesus cannot be accepted by them because he doesn't fit any of their criteria. He gets down on his knees. He calls them to repent. He says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Follow me. Repent. Come into my kingdom. And what happens? He gets rejected in different ways. Now, what we see in these stories from the first story to the third story. We, we just we watch Jesus going into his hometown. And when he goes into his hometown, uh, we see that uh, nobody can believe that he is the Messiah or the king. Why? Because they're going, isn't that Joseph's son? Wait, isn't that the carpenter? Aren't Jesus' brothers and sisters still in our town? And they're looking at him and kind of going, isn't that like the, the, the chubby little fat kid who sang in the choir for all that time, you know? That, that was a story from my past, right? <laughs> How could he be the man of my dreams? He's been under my nose all of these years. He is definitely not the man of my dreams. How could he be the Messiah? Because inside of this, you see, they weren't weren't violent with Jesus at this point, but they just were familiar with him. They weren't violent, they were just familiar with him. And in the next one, you see Jesus sending out his disciples. And when he's sending out his disciples, he gives them authority. And we're going to look at that. He gives them authority, but he also warns them that they will go places and be rejected. 
They will be rejected because of the gospel that is being preached, because of what is said. So you see familiarity breeds contentment. You see rejection, that they will go places and tell people the good news and they will not be received. And then you see in the third story, somebody being killed. Somebody being killed, not because of uh, any other reason except for their proclamation of the gospel. John the Baptist was hated by this woman who was married to somebody in power. Isn't that an interesting part of it? It wasn't even that King Herod, it wasn't even that the king was angry. He knew that he was righteous. He didn't quite understand him, but he, he kept him safe. But this woman, she wanted to kill him. So at a moment when she sends her daughter out to dance for the king, he says, I'll give you anything. Just that promise that a man makes in the midst of his lust, right? She takes advantage of that, tells her daughter, say, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he does it. All three of these stories show rejection and show a kind of rejection. And here's what we have to see from this progression of stories is that rejection is rejection no matter if it's served warm or cold. It's still rejection. If somebody's down on their knees saying, I'm the man of your dreams, the one you've been waiting for all of your life, will you marry me? You can accept that proposal. That's very easy. Yes, I will leave all others and I will follow you. Or you can reject it. But then you have to go through your mind, how am I going to reject them? Am I going to do it in a very warm way? Like, oh, you're silly. You're cute. We've been living in the same town for a long time. I've heard of you. I see, I've heard you do crazy things, but listen, you were the kid in the choir. You were, you, were, you, were, you were the carpenter, your brother and sister. I've seen you. I know what you've, I know you. Or you can do it just, I'm going to slam the door. I don't want nothing to do with you. I, I'm, I'm too busy. Or you could be so cold-hearted and hateful that you could make it your mission to destroy him and kill him. All of that is rejection. But it's just different forms of the same thing. All of that is complete rejection of the gospel. Here's something interesting that I don't know if you noticed this in your walk with the Lord, but it, it took me a minute. When I really came to know and follow Christ, the good news was such good news to me. I mean, I heard that Christ died for my sins and the work that he had accomplished on the cross was the, was, was the work that I could not do, that God did the work for me. I could not do anything to earn God's favor and grace. And that what Christ did on the cross because he loved me, that I was then set free from trying to earn a place and position with God, with the Father. And that when when he rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death and he's placed his spirit within me. When I heard the gospel and the spirit made that alive in my heart, I was like, this is amazing. This is incredible. I was truly and fully set free. I cannot even explain what took place in my life when I really heard the gospel. There was so much freedom and joy and life and God brought alive the death that was in my heart. It became not just words on a page or a message from the pulpit. It became life to me. And when I heard this, I thought, my goodness. People need to hear this. They need to hear that you cannot earn your, your salvation. You cannot earn your place with God. But God showed His love towards you that He sent His Son and did the work for you. You don't have to work anymore. Jesus did the work for you. He loves you. 
That He wants us to be a part of His kingdom and and He's brought us in. We can be free from the slavery of sin and death. This kind of message set me free. And I thought, this could set the world free. And I was surprised. It took not... (laughs) Not that long of preaching that to realize that the good news is not always received as good news. Um, just think about it. I mean, the story that I told, if we just take that story of the woman who's getting proposed to and there's the person who's saying they're the man of your dreams on the ground proposing to you, that should be good news to a girl but that's not good news for her because this is not the man of her dreams. This is not the one she loves and wants. This is something, this is, it should be good news, but it's not good news. The message that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is here and coming and that we could be a part of his kingdom is is good news and it should be good news, but it's not good news to other kings and other kingdoms. They don't want to hear that. The message of freedom and that you could be free from slavery and brought under this rule and reign of Christ is good news, but it's not good news to somebody who likes their slavery. The message that you don't have to work for your salvation that Christ has done the work for you and that his work is all that that we can do by faith and trust in him and that you don't have to work to earn salvation and right standing with God that it's by grace that you've been saved that should be good news except for those who have built their whole life upon their self-righteousness and good works it's interesting that when we start talking about these things And we've been so set free by them, which is amazing. When we've been radically changed by the gospel, we need to know that not everybody is going to see this as good news. Not everybody. Even in this room, as we go through a text like this, there's two ways to look at this. One, there could be a warning to the Christian. And we'll talk about that. A warning to the Christian on how we should live our lives and the attitude that we should have as we face rejection. We will talk about that. But there's another way to look at this also where you can see this could be a warning to us who are the hearers, to us who have heard the gospel, to us who are seeing it, that as we are looking at this, we need to be warned of let's not become too familiar I think if there's anything in our culture that we need to be very, very careful of is that we have so many resources and so many churches and so many of all all this, we even think of ourselves as a Christian nation that we could just become familiar with hearing about Jesus. Yeah, I've heard about his death on the cross. Yeah, I've heard about what, what he's done. I've heard about this Jesus. And we become familiar with the message and we do not revere him in our hearts. And the message becomes powerless to us. Or maybe we're just those who are rejecting and going, you know, I don't want to hear it. I don't have time for this. I've got too many things going on in my life. Yeah, that's good what he's done, but I do not have time for this commitment right now. This commitment is too much for me. I'm too busy for this kind of covenant. We reject the gospel. Or maybe our hearts are so cold that we would want to not just reject, but we would want to destroy and kill. It could be a warning for those who are going to preach the gospel, and it could be a warning warning for those who are in the place of hearing. Where is your heart? But what we do see in this is a couple of things, and I want us to take notice of them. First is this. Love, or the gospel, it transforms us. And it so deeply transforms us that it sends us. 
It so deeply transforms us that it sends us. Here's what we see in this text. What we see taking place is these disciples have been so transformed by the kingdom, by the gospel, by the love of God. They've been so transformed by it that they've been brought into this relationship with with Jesus. They've been made right before the Father. Just notice they've been discipled by Him and they've been so changed by it that now they're being put on display to proclaim it and to live it out. Listen, the same gospel that changes our lives personally will send us and put us on display. The beautiful thing about the work of Jesus is that yes, we are made right before God. And that is true, that what is true about Jesus because of his work is true about you. That when you're brought into the kingdom of God, you're made right before God. But you're also brought into the kingdom of God and that relationship with God so impacts your life that you become a display of that relationship for the world around you. The gospel impacts the mission of your lives, and how we live our lives. See, what a lot of people think of when they think of salvation is they think that what happens is there's one level of salvation that you come into, and that is I'm made right before God, and I get to enjoy my relationship with God, and it's a personal relationship with me and Him. And most of us, if we're honest, hope that that is true because we don't want texts like this to be true where we're so changed by the gospel that the same God that has made us right before himself and done the work so that we could be in a relationship with him is the same God who is using us by his spirit to work in this world because we want to be in a category where we get all the benefits but we don't want to be in a category where salvation so encompasses our lives that the message becomes so a part of who we are that our lives are a display of that salvation to the world around us listen this kind of work where god changes us so drastically that we are sent to the world to display his kingdom and his glory and sent to show his works and to do good works this kind of salvation is not another level of salvation it is salvation it's what it means to be brought into a relationship with God. Think of it this way. If you accept this proposal where he gets down on his knees, if you will, and he says, come into my kingdom. I want, will you marry me? Come into this covenant. Every covenant has, right, built into it rejection of something. I'm rejecting all other guys. I'm rejecting all other relationships. I'm not going to be a part of those relationships. I'm going to love this one, and we are going to share our lives together so I'm leaving all those things behind but hopefully you don't go around and going listen you don't know how many relationships I could have had but I chose you right that's not the way you you put it you put it much nicer than that all of them were nothing compared to you it doesn't even seem like loss because I get the best and inside of that relationship, I get to enjoy that. But also, everything that comes with being in that relationship, not only do I leave things behind and covenant in that relationship, his mission, his heart, his purpose becomes mine. Now what he's called to do, what those things that we are called to live in, now all I've got, I get to live in that same purpose. Marriage as it comes together has a very missional purpose to it. We get to do life and gospel work together. That when we come into relationship with Christ, not only do we get to enjoy the relationship, but we get to be a part of his work. And that's good news, church. Because many of us just wander around trying to figure out what is our purpose. But when we come into relationship with Christ, not only do we get freedom, we get to see our purpose in Him. You could say amen there. Yeah, thank you, thank you. You see, in the call of discipleship, in the call of following Christ, there is cost. But what we love to do is just focus on the cost and not on the joys. Look at this. Look at what you can notice from this. Oh, you could go, oh, here's the cost. 
There's going to be people who reject us because they're familiar with our past. They knew who we were in the past, just like Jesus. I, I know what that's like. How many of you have tried to convince somebody you're changed and they're like, I saw you as a kid when you were running around smoking weed, you know? They hold you to the things in the past. They're familiar with you. They don't see any changes. You're going, okay, there's no people reject me because they've seen the things I've done in the past. Or maybe there's those who I've tried to tell and I'm going to be rejected. That means when I go out, I'm going to face rejection. People are going to slam doors or whatever. They're going to look at me at work and they're not going to want to talk to me or whatever it is. They're going to see something in my life and they're not going to want to engage with me. I'm going to face rejections or maybe at the worst case scenario, maybe even I'm putting my life on the line where I could die for my faith. These are very real things. Look at all the cost I have to face. We love pointing out all the costs because there is cost in being in a relationship with Christ. Can you say amen to that? There is cost but notice in the whole story, there's much more than costs that are listed there. Jesus is doing miracles everywhere. The disciples are seeing miracles. When he sends them out, he tells them, I'm going to give you authority over demons. You're going to do miracles. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to go out and do the works of the Lord. You're going to proclaim, there will be people who will reject you, but you're going to do my work wherever I go, and I'm going to send you out two by two. That's an amazing thing. I'm going to put you in community. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you out two by two with others. There's going to be those who are going to be in, in the same place on doing work together with you. And you're going to go out and you're going to partake in my work. And they get to see miracles. And when they come back, notice they're not talking about all of the things that happened to them, just rejection. They're talking about all the things that happened while they were doing the work of the ministry. This is, this is truly what it is to be in the life of God. If you get so wrapped up in all all the costs, people reject me, people hate me, people are facing, I might even have to die. We could seclude ourselves and start to fear. But when we see that all of that is lumped into a different life that we get to live, that we get to see God working in us and through us in ways that we had never seen before, that is truly how the life in Christ really looks. I mean, there are times where people reject me for sure, and it hurts. There are times when people reject even the work that I'm trying to do serve and those kind of things. But most of the time, and a lot of the times, the things that overwhelm me is the fact that I get to see people healed. <laughs> I get to see people walking in freedom. I get to walk through those things and see God's power transforming people's lives. Don't miss in this text, yes, there is death, yes, there is rejection, and yes, there is problems with familiarity, but also miracles. And what we have to do as we look at these things is what can we learn? What is Mark trying to teach us as disciples? There's a couple of things I wrote down, and then we'll pray. One would be this. Isn't it amazing in the first text when, when Jesus faces a familiarity in the first story where they're just saying, isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that his family still here? Isn't it amazing that the story says he can't do miracles? And that, that one, if you really study and you've got to push into it, but it wouldn't even take that much discernment for you to go, wait, Jesus can't do something? One, this shows us a couple of things. One, obviously he can do miracles because the next sentence says he did do miracles. He healed some, he prayed for some, but there wasn't the level of miracles that there were in other towns. So it wasn't an issue of can't, right? It wasn't an issue like God was powerless in this and Jesus was powerless in this. But that faith is really important. Trust is really important. And in the face of, of, of this kind of thing, wouldn't you think God would work over, Jesus would work overtime to go, let me prove to you I really am God. Let me prove to you I really am God. But he didn't, wait, he didn't feel the weight of trying to prove himself, but instead showed judgment. This is interesting because a lot of us, when we think of judgment, we say this, 
oh, this guy just cussed in the sanctuary. Step away from him. Why? He might get zapped by lightning. That's what we think of when we think of judgment. Don't stand by him. He might get zapped by lightning. If he got zapped by lightning, hear me on this, that would be grace, not judgment. Because Scripture shows us, and even in this text, and when we studied Romans, it made it very, very clear that the judgment of God is when he does nothing. Not when he does something. The judgment of God is when he does nothing, not when he does something. When someone is in their unbelief and in their sin and God does nothing, that is his judgment. That's him taking his hands off and saying, you can be your own Lord. You can run your own life. You could be the master of your own world and you're going to experience not life and freedom in the kingdom. You're going to experience death and judgment. Listen, what we see in this text is that Jesus didn't feel the weight of proving himself. When he stepped away and did nothing, you should look at this text and go, there's the judgment of God there. You see, often when we think about judgment, and we think of all of those enemies in the world that are rejecting God and coming after him. And we see the very brutal enemies who are out there to destroy the name of God. And then we see the very passive ones who are just kind of going, oh, it's, it's whatever. But there are many people who are rejecting God. And often we think, why are you not doing anything to prove yourself, God? Why aren't you showing how strong you are? Why aren't you doing it and fighting and destroying these enemies, these people who are rejecting you? Why are you not doing anything? And our hearts in that is which we want him to prove himself and show how strong he really is. But even in his judgment, he shows his character and heart. He basically shows his disciples what he tells them to do in the face of rejection. And that is walk away. Shake the dust off of your feet. You see, in the next story, as he's sending his disciples out to face and do the works of God, he tells them you will face rejection. But what I want you to do is if in the face of real rejection, I don't want you to try and prove yourself. You have to get to a place where you walk away. Shake the dust off your feet. This was a Jewish ritual signifying that if you did not accept the people of God, you weren't accepting God himself. That when people refused to listen or accept the people of God, they would shake the dust off of their feet. And in his desire to communicate to his disciples the heart in which he wanted them to have as he went and did his works, what he was telling them was you could go out and try and and serve people and show them the good news of the gospel and you could go out and display this grace and show this grace and heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God and people will reject you. And when they do, don't try to prove yourself or get even. Trust me. Trust me. You see, this is very difficult to do. Now, the reason why some of us will not relate to a text like this in this way is because we have not served or cared for people enough to really feel the weight of this kind of rejection. Where we have given our whole self to to reaching out to them, to investing in their lives, to caring for them, to calling them to the gospel, to pointing them to his love, to being there in their homes, to walking through these kinds of things. And this is the kind of experience where they get to see glimpses of God's miracle, but in the end they turn their back and they want nothing to do with it. And that feels personal. Have you ever tried to serve someone and that you get so deep into it you really want want them to come and know and follow and love Jesus and it gets so personal that when they reject him you feel like they're rejecting you and you start to carry the weight of of this 
not just doing what God has sent you to do, but something in us wants to be God and be the one who can save them. It's very difficult to fully give your life to loving and serving and, and, and pointing people and living your life in the way that God has called us to and not to see the results that we think should happen. And very quickly you realize when you're doing the work of the Lord, I'm not God. And it takes extreme difficulty at points to go. The best thing I can do is back away. Shake the dust off my feet. And, and many of us go, oh, I see. He's just coldly shaking the dust off his feet and walking out and saying, forget you. <laughs> That's not what the symbol was. The symbol, as they shake the dust off their feet, was a kind of a last a last hope that they would see God's judgment in them walking away and long to repent and come back. The symbol was a last cry, if you will, to say, I'm taking my hands off. And it is very difficult in those moments to remind yourself, I don't save people. And I'm not going to get angry and I'm not going to try to get even I'm not going to let this become it because even in those moments for those who are followers of Christ you begin to realize God is teaching me to trust him as I'm serving others can you say amen to that I've learned so much more about the heart of God by serving others and even in my heart to respond to them because I constantly have to look back to who's the one who's actually doing the work. The other thing that we learn in this is that death is the center of love. Death is at the center of love. The reason why we get to be brought into a relationship with God it's because Jesus died. He died the death we should have died. And because of his death, sacrificial love, we get to be brought back into a relationship with God. God is love. That's hard for us to hear because many of us think love is God. And this is what I mean by that. We have a definition of what we think love is and we compare God to that definition of love. But Scripture shows us God is love. That means we should know who God is. And when we see who God is in His character and His life, we should see that is true love. And true love is not this romanticized love that we get in our mind, but true love is the sacrificing of one for the good of all. You see... We, as the followers of Christ, understand that because of Christ's death, we get to be brought in and made one with Him. But because we have experienced this kind of love, the Bible shows this is the kind of love we give others. A kind of love that has the heart of the King and the kingdom. One that puts our life in that place of going, even if I die, for the sake of the kingdom, that in my death they would be able to see that that is just a, a, a version of the kind of love that I've received from Christ. And what he's showing that is even as disciples, there are some who will die. John died. Follower of Jesus. One who was a proclaimer of his. John died. But this death is to remind us of a greater death that's going to come at the end of the book of Mark. The kind of death that brought us in and the kind of love we get to experience. And when we really see this kind of death in the face of wicked and lust-filled, brutal people, that even in that kind of death, there's a display of the kingdom of God that shows us that death is at the center of love. The reason why we can really understand the kind of love that we are to give to others is because we've received that kind of love through the one who 
died for us and sent us. Isn't it amazing that in the kingdom of God, the military strategy is not go and conquer and destroy other towns and make them a part of our kingdom. The military strategy is love your enemies to the point of them rejecting you and even to the point of death. Love them. That the king sends us out with the greatest weapon of all to do his work. And that's love. That's amazing. That's amazing that we get to experience and give out this kind of love. But this kind of love is scary. And the only way to have this kind of love, the only way, is by seeing the kind of love that we have received. I want to end with this and then we're going to take a time communion. I, I don't know if, if many of you got to see that there was a group from our church and churches and other churches um, and some of you in this room did get a chance to go t- to stand in front of uh, a mosque this, was it Friday, Ken? Was it Friday? On Friday where there was a bunch of people who were standing with weapons who were yelling at the Muslims that were going in to pray. There was a group of Christians that were standing on the sidewalk between all of those who were standing with guns and yelling and those who were going in to pray to another God. There was a group of Christians, more, more Christians that came out from other churches who were just standing there proclaiming the love. And, and, and I posted an article and just said, man, this is encouragement to me to see the love of God displayed in this way. And a friend of mine from a while ago posted on my Facebook saying, there's no way that I can love these Muslims because I, w- I served in the military and I saw the root of evil that's in there and they're our enemies. And he goes on this whole thing and he's saying, and then somebody responded and says, Jesus tells us to love these people. And they got into a little bit of the end. By the end, he said, listen, let's be real. It's hard for me to love because I've seen things that they've done. And it hit me at that moment that that is true. That is true for all of us when we are looking at those around us, when we're looking at those who've rejected God, when we looked at those who are our enemy and are wanting to kill us, when we're looking at all the things that are being done to us. It is true when we see the enemy and the evil that is in the world, when we look at them and we go, there's no reason to love them. There's no way to find love by looking at the world and the people in the world and those that reject and and those who turn the back and those who come against. There's no reason but when we look at Christ we get a whole different view of the world around us a whole different view now we see that there was one who if he would have looked at us and our works and our evil and the way that we acted if he would have looked at us and judged us based upon our works we would have no way of being loved But instead of looking at us, He looked at the One who died for us and sacrificed for us and did the work for us and gave us a love that we did not deserve and looked upon the sacrifice of His Son and gave us a love that only that Son would deserve. A love that is far beyond what we could ever earn or afford. That we were His enemies in, in war with Him. But He brought us into a loving relationship that's not based upon our works, but the work of Jesus. If that's the kind of love that we can receive, then it's not about what they've done. It's about what He's done. That's the love that sends us. That's the love that transforms us and pushes us to share this kind of love with the world around us even if it means we have to die for it. Which is the greatest honor and reflection. And believe me, there's many of us who will never face that kind of evil or rejection where we're going to have to die for our faith. But I will tell you this, most of us are facing the kind of rejection of familiarity and people slamming doors in our faces and walking away. 
and we continue to show love, even if it means that we have to not prove ourselves and back away. That's a loving act. God, would you help us? Would you help us as we are on your mission? Would you help us to remember that we are not the ones who save people and change people's hearts? We are not the ones who get to, who get to control and make all these things come together. Lord, and as we're working, we really want to see people come to know you and follow you. And, and Lord, we have to be reminded oftentimes that, that we rejected you in so many ways. So, Lord, I'm asking that today, as we come to this table, can we remember what you've done for us and the love you've shown and how we need to show love towards others. This is a difficult thing, God, because we don't know when, when do we walk away, when do, we, when do we pursue, how do we really love people like you. And God, when we look at it, we need you. We need to see you. We need to, under, we need to be in relationship with you. We need your spirit in our lives. We need your authority. We need your witness in us. If we're going to do this work that you're sending us on, we need you. We cannot do it without you. Lord, I pray that today as we come and eat of your body and drink of your blood, that our hearts would be encouraged, encouraged by how much love you've shown us. And let that love so deeply affect us that, that we would share this love with the world around us. Church, as you come to these tables, I'm praying that the Spirit would take some of these words and, and make them alive in your heart. We're going to do three things. We're going to prepare ourselves to give of our tithes and offerings. We're going to come to the table and we're going to sing a song of worship. And in that time, this is going to be our response, our giving back, our listening and responding and taking of, of the body and blood and eating and drinking and singing and worshiping. And that in all of this, our giving of our tithes, our taking of communion and the sacraments and our singing of songs, we're responding to the gospel work. So church, we're going to do these three things. Either we're going to prepare ourselves to give. We're going to come to the table as the song is playing. We're going to meditate upon his work. We're going to sing. And then in just a moment, after this time of prayer, we're going to be dismissed. So church, let's respond to this word today.